Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 356, recorded October 10th, 2023. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Aachen. And this episode is brought to you by us, courses over at Talk Python Training, the complete PyTest course from Ryan, Patreon supporters, and find us over on Fostodon. That's probably the best way to chat with us these days. And also be part of the live, live show, pythonbytes.fm slash live, usually Tuesdays at 11 Pacific time. And you can also see all the old versions there as well. So Brian, what are you going to start us with today? Well, I thought I would start with a, um, it's kind of going to have a theme of getting information from, um, from Fostodon, people letting us know. So I saw uh, today um, a post by the PsychoPG group. So, um, so Psycho Postgres. And the post says, it feels weird, but it's time to stop considering PsychoPG2 the present and PsychoPG3 the future. We've entered the time where PsychoPG3 is the present and 2 is the respectable past. Update Updated the feature page and a few other resources on the website to reflect this. So I thought I would check it out. So Awesome. That's big news. You know, Postgres is clearly the biggest database that people use in the Python space, according to the survey we talked about recently. So yep. yeah, this is relevant, right? Yeah. And uh, this is a great library. I've been using the the version two for a long time and I guess kind of like haven't been paying attention to the three, but it's been out for a while. So uh, the, the three page talks about, basically talks about the, it's a new implementation of the most used, reliable and feature rich, feature rich Postgres adapter for Python. And uh, there is some differences though. So the the um, apparently most of uh, two was written in C, but um, uh, three is uh, written in a combination. So a lot of it's in Python, and some of the speedups are in C. Um, and so the big announcement really is that um, there are no. Uh, so um, we're going to link to both the three page and the features page. And the features page has a nice comparison of the of two versus three. So the really the recommendation is. They're still going to maintain two, but um, you should maybe think about, mostly think about three for new projects. So if you already have an existing project that's running two, go ahead and leave it running with that. I couldn't find where they're doing it, when or if or where they're doing announced an end of life. So um, I don't think that's even planned at this point for end of life for two, eventually probably. But so two has been around since 2006. Uh, three started in uh, first release in 2021, but they've got a whole bunch of cool things in here. So th some of the things I thought were pretty cool was um, we've got uh, native async IO support. Uh, that looks pretty nice. Um, native support for more Python types such as enums and uh, Postgres types. So Postgres, one of the cool Postgres types was uh, multi-range. So that's supported now. That's pretty nice. Um, and then uh, I don't know what parameter bindings are actually, but uh, apparently two has uh, client side parameter bindings and three defaults to server side parameter bindings. But uh, but you can you can still do client side if you want to. So uh, lots of fun stuff in here. Um, uh, advanced connect connection pool, static typing support. Uh, yeah. So um, I say why not try three and only uh, go back to two if you really need to. So yeah. This is super exciting. Those are a lot of great features. I think the async support was previously done uh, through a separate library, and now it's just part of it. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. The uh, what is the present, what is the past, what is the future? We'll come back to that in our extras. We'll have some fun there. Okay. And then um, also our 
audience is awesome. Mike Peedletter says, hey, I, I migrated PyPI from Psycho PG2 to 3 in June. It was not too hard, but took some time to do safely. So, hey, when you pip install things or PyPI lookup things, it's already using this. Awesome. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's cool. Nice. Indeed, indeed. All right. Shall we convert some data? That's what I got next. Sure. Let's talk about it. So we all know about Pydantic, right? And Pydantic is cool. So Pydantic lets us like create uh, classes that derive from some Pydantic base type, uh, base model, and it will do conversions and parsing of JSON and so on. But maybe, maybe you know about data classes, right? These are built in. They're not anything separate. They're part of Python itself. And so being able to use them is pretty cool. And Raymond Peck commented on one of uh, our YouTube videos and said, Hey, I use this thing called Daysight. Hopefully that's the right pronunciation, Daysight. And the idea is it allows you to create Python data classes in a similar way, right? So simple creation of data classes from dictionaries. So APIs and other things. And you just create a data classes as you normally would. Data classes just are classes with, you know, global or static, static level um, field type right? Like class user, name, colon, string, age, colon, end, and so on. Then you just put the data class wrapper on it, right? And it gives it a bunch of nice things like hashability, comparability, et cetera, right? Constructors. But if you've got a dictionary that has sub-objects that themselves should be data classes and maybe a list of other things that should be data classes, actually turning that JSON into one of these more complicated versions is a hassle, right? You also might need to do data conversion uh, as well, right? To make sure that the types match. So that's what you can use this for. And it's it's pretty neat. You can just say from dict, they cite dot from dict, and you say what data class it's going to go to and what the dictionary is. And like a little factory method out pops one of these objects. Cool, right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And let's see, features include nested structures like I described, basic type checking, optional fields, union. So if you say it can be an int or a string, it'll check that it's one of those two, but not a float or something. Forward references, collections, and interestingly, custom type hooks. So for example, you can say anytime that you're going to take a string, actually call string a lot dot lower dot strip on it if it's not null, right? If it's not none, things like that, right? So you can actually get into the parsing side a little bit if you need to. So that's pretty neat. What else have we got here? Let me scroll down. It talks, of course, about all the things I said. Yeah, I think that's that's probably it. I guess one thing it's um, worth pointing out, it says right in the docs, they say it's important to mention that it's not a data validation library. Now, when I first read that, I'm like, but there's all these types, <laughs> right? Is it like, is it supposed to find out when I say the thing takes a string and an int and a bool for its three fields, like it will actually do that. It it does that, but you can't say like the string must be this regular expression and this many characters and the int has to be positive and hmm. like those types of things it doesn't do, right? So it's just dictionary to object, possibly complex data class object, but with type validation and that's about it. Hmm. But still, I think that's super, super useful. So kind of partway validator things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like more of like a proper parser without the validation itself. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So. Anyway, that's what I got for people. It's, it was news to me, so check it out. I think that's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. um, so I am going to continue on with um, a uh, topic of, I guess, the ever rustification of um, of Python projects. Uh, and this one is one that we use every day, PIP. 
So um, this was this came to us from Owen Owen Lamont, I think. Owen Lamont, thanks, Owen. So uh, said said, hey, you guys might be interested in this. It's a, a pro- under the project group uh, prefix dev is rip rip for uh, for a Rust uh, pip written in Rust. And I was ready to go try it. It's not ready to try yet, but it's still pretty exciting. So uh, the uh, kind of the headline, fast bare bones pip implementation in Rust. And it's not just an installer though. So it has, um, it's got, uh, what does it have so far? It's got, it, you can download and aggressively cache uh, PyPI metadata, resolve PyPI packages using a pack project called Resolvo, which is a kind of a Rust thing. Um, and then uh, still on the planned list is actually installing the files. Um, <laughs> so uh, doesn't I, I'm just chuckling because yeah I, I just jumped the gun. But this is new, so it's it's fine that it, it it's published early. So uh, first commits look like about two weeks ago. So um, I'm pretty excited about about this. I think it'd be fun to uh, try it out um, and uh, and look at diff- possibly different resolvers and how they handled it versus normal pip so kind of neat yeah when i saw this too uh i was pretty excited so thanks owen for sending this in yeah it's it's cool and mike says let her rip i love it (laughs) yeah so um it looks like maybe we should have swapped the these last two topics but uh i don't know let's go with the with your next topic well i do think that this one would have been pretty good for you to cover but too bad i'm I'm already on it so here we go (laughs) I guess the only like stronger tie to me is it's in response to a Talk Python episode. So this one comes to us from Marwin. And thank you, Marwin, for sending it in and writing this article called How Not to Foot Gun Yourself When Writing Tests, a Showcase of Flaky Tests. And so as I was writing an article, I was writing this article after listening to Talk Python with Gregory Kampfhammer and Owen Perry talking about flaky tests. So that was the subject of that. Basically talked about all of their experience here, which is cool. Um, like a definition and ex- really a lot of examples of flaky tests, I thought. I mean, you know, Brian, did you get to check any of these out? I haven't looked at this yet, no. Well, we'll, you'll, we'll do it live, okay? Okay. So the first one is um, really about concurrency and said, well, look, I've got a bunch of tests. Maybe I could speed them up by using threading and run a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> However, there's a real simple example of like, hey, I've got an account. And I can transfer money from one account to the other. So first account dot withdraw this amount and then second account deposit that amount, right? And how could that go wrong? So do a bunch of those and then, hey, if we want to make those faster, let's run them in some threads, right? Rather than using, say, one of the PyTest plugins like more properly, right? This is more to highlight like what might go wrong, you know? Um, and it turns out that we have the gill and I think... I think Marlon's right. I think people do think that uh, the gill will just kind of save you from concurrency, right? Because only one thing can run at a time. So how are you going to have a problem? Well, well, it's one fine thing. It's it's one <laughs> kind of bytecode at a time. Exactly. One Python bytecode. But here's the thing. If your program ever enters into a temporarily invalid state ever, you may, you may need uh, some kind of concurrency locks or something. And I think I mean, my reading of Python stuff, I don't see this very often. And I think actually a lot of people should be doing more locks, honestly. So even in this example, I withdraw some money. And now for just a moment, the program is in a temporarily temporarily invalid state until it's deposited into the other account, right? Yeah. So that's this moment, like if the gill says, okay, you ran enough, we're going to switch to the other one. 
then that somebody tries to, the other one reads that state, that's going to be trouble, right? So they were talking about, well, how do you actually, you know, how do you actually check this? And here's something I actually didn't even know. Is, look, you can actually make that switching back and forth more aggressive. You can control that switching that the, the gill does on the, how much Python on one thread it'll do before it switches to another by getting the switch interval. And here they set it to one-tenth of a millisecond. Oh, wow. And then they do a bunch of work, and then they put it back. And that's pretty interesting. Did you know you could do that? I didn't. This is pretty cool. To I know. This, this might be worth covering the article right here, just that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Good for yeah said, for testing these race conditions. Yes, exactly. Like make it make it worse, uh, and also run it on more cores potentially. I don't know. Probably that doesn't too much matter. Uh, okay, so to avoid boilerplate, you can reach out to the PyTest Repeat plugin. Weren't you just talking about this? <laughs> I know you're doing some stuff with it. Yeah, I'm uh, one of the maintainers on it now. There's my picture. Yeah, I feel like you. Yeah, I feel like you had actually uh, just mentioned it. Uh, maybe it was the Git the Git article or something. But anyway, recently I thought you were just talking yeah, about last this, week. So. Yeah, exactly. Also uh, worth pointing out, a similar and more straightforward plugin possibly for this job is PyTest Flake Finder, which is meant to find flaky tests. Oh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> this Okay, so one of the, I, let's just hang out for here. Uh, one of the differences they're saying is that um, you can repeat your test multiple times with repeat or Flake Finder, you can repeat your whole suite. That's one of the things I, I need to change for repeat because you can do the same thing with, with repeat. You can uh, run the whole suite. Um, it's just kind of hidden in two lines of the readme, and it needs to be more bolded that you can you can change the scope and repeat the whole thing. So, oh, nice, yeah. nice. All right, randomness. Uh, for example, algorithms that are non-deterministic, like heuristic ones. So that's um, pretty interesting. So they do um, what is this like a distance algorithm or something that's heuristic? So they say like um, you know NP close, which um, they're they're testing on NP close, whereas um, NumPy like are these vectors uh, close it says basically fix this by actually you know computing the tolerance and they use a little statistics like yeah probably more statistics than i know but let's say three standard deviations away or something like that uh, it's interesting obviously floating point arithmetic is always trouble loss of precision is always trouble but one uh they talk about here that's interesting is um using integers like integers in python are arbitrarily large, which I think probably complicates C interoperability every now and then, but otherwise is like a good thing generally. However, if you're doing NumPy, NumPy has you know C backing for a lot mm. of its types, right? Like int32 and oh, yeah. so on. So so you could end up with, if you specify a particular data type in there, when you create your array, right? Data type is np int32 then you do have to care about the 2.14 billion limit, right? Yeah. I mean, you probably know that all the time from C, right? You got to worry about variable sizes and signed, unsigned, shorts and whatever. Yeah, and be careful about the order of operations so you don't overflow in the middle of an opera, a set of operations. Yeah. Uh, let's see, there's some interesting things about fuzzing your data, like sending a bunch of crazy data or even using hypothesis to try to find edge cases timeouts for external systems be like super explicit about those so there's just you know there are a bunch of cool examples and you're like this is a really properly long article here mm, <laughs> you know? nice. so um i think it really highlights a lot of good examples follow up to that podcast episode but just good for testing as well yeah i can't wait to read that more closely and listen to that episode i have to admit i haven't listened to it yet so. yeah it's a good one um 
Blaze out in the audience wonders if we have to reinvent these corner cases for rust. I imagine we probably do, Blaze. Good point. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> how, how extra are you feeling, Brian? Uh, I'm feeling pretty extra. Actually, myself, not too much. I've just, uh, I've been, uh, I've been actually doing a lot of personal projects. So uh, I haven't been doing a lot of um, uh, work projects to announce. However, those are wrapping up. The personal stuff's wrapping up. So I hope to get more Python people and Python test episodes out soon and more course chapters coming. So everything in due time. Nice. How about you? Uh, I have some extras as well. First, I just got back from Pi Bay last night. So that was a lot of fun. Pi Bay is always a, a good time if I zoom out and get the video to play even. So really cool environment and saw, you know, nice to meet a lot of people there. So for those of you I met, uh, great to meet you. Also, I just want to give a shout out to SparkMail. I just started using SparkMail to try to kind of like mm. unify some stuff. And what a cool, what a cool app for Mac OS email. So people, uh, if they're if you're like fed up with using different web front ends for different things, and it was like, ah, they're all a little bit different. One has E for archive, one has A for archive, but like Proton Mail, like the A for archive only periodically works. Sometimes it works. And you're like, why is it so frustrating? I'm like, maybe I could just use one thing and, and all. And that was really fun. So also, I think a big part of the development team is in Ukraine. So happy to be uh, mm. supporting those folks as well. Nice. Um, so somewhere it says like made uh, from, you know, made, made from like hello from Ukraine or something like that, which is cool. However, one of the challenges is one of my personal email domains is actually backed by ProtonMail. I think I talked about that before. But ProtonMail has end-to-end -end encryption, and so you can't talk to it with a third-party email client, right? Okay. Because it can't decrypt it. It doesn't use IMAP, at least not directly. So uh, if you use ProtonMail and you want to have something that is not, you know, there's a proper, like a standard email client, you can install this thing called Proton, um, what's it called? Just Bridge? Proton Mail Bridge is its name. And what it is is it runs locally on your computer. It does all the end-to-end -end encryption and then puts it like it has a a password protected but not end-to-end -end encrypted IMAP thing that just runs on localhost. So you just attach to localhost for your IMAP and then you have Proton Mail plugged into, you know, their examples are Outlook, which just made me get a little wheezy just thinking about it. But, you know, it also works on Spark Mail and, and other nice things. So... I had been using Superhuman, which was really nice, but that's only Gmail, which is such a hassle. So mm. this works for anything, which makes me super happy. Yeah, I don't think I'm what do using... What you do for email? I, I just use the web clients, uh, but mostly it's a fa fast mail. For yeah, email. nice. Uh, that's what I had been doing for 10 years, but I just kind of like, there were just too many and they were, I don't know, weird. And I'm like, let me try this. I really like it. I think I, I, think I will check it out. Uh, one of the things you brought up Outlook, and I thought it was, it, I'm, I have to work, use Outlook for work. and I still drives me crazy that control F is not find it's forward. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. It's terrible. Yeah. This thing is nice. Like it has sort of, um, digital well-being stuff where it will only show you, you can have it time out. So it brings you to this thing like, Hey, check your email, your email just like two or three times a day. Show me mm -hmm. on like this little list here. That'll just show like, say people that are important to me, but nobody else you can like block senders. Like it's, it's pretty sweet. Nice. Cool. Yeah. 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 Okay, uh, next, what I hinted at before is I ran across this YouTube channel called Dust. Okay. Man, are they making amazing science fiction. Have you seen this? Uh, just, you shared it with me last week. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's just, it's just this independent channel and they are posting like new 
uh, if you like short sci-fi, like 10, 20 minutes sci-fi stories, the production quality is just off the chart. So I recommend two people actually interested in this FTL faster than light, which is about faster than light travel. And it's, it's pretty neat. Like the, the graphics and stuff is, it's surprisingly good for what it is. So people can check that out. And also one called, uh, called Oceanus, which is like about this, uh, sort of underwater world. And yeah, it's like this one's 30 minutes. It's long. But anyway, if people want, you know, short form science fiction, this is pretty awesome. I'll link to it in the show notes. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Blaze out there says FTL is a great short. I totally agree. It's very, very well done. Hmm. Neat. Yeah. And it's not always the Hollywood, like, of course, the good person has to, you know, the hero has to triumph at the end. Of course, it's just a matter of how. Yeah. You never know. It's some of these are pretty open-ended as you might expect a, a 10 minute show to be. Well, you know, I think. You know, there's some half hour shows on TV that really are only like 15 minutes if you take the commercials. Out. I know. A lot of the comments on, if you look at like the FTL one, for example, the comments are like, this is a better show than Hollywood studios make with millions of dollars and large teams. Like, how are you all doing this? So anyway, I thought, it, thought yeah. people might appreciate this given our audience. It's probably a little bit techie. Yeah, cool. Right. Have you um, ever wanted to just like rewrite your, your software, like some old junkie? Thing, wrote it in some old code and you're going to rewrite in the new awesomeness? Uh, uh, frequently, yes. <laughs> there's an amazing, so this is the joke. So there's an amazing video, uh, music video, which is a parody on American Pie. And for those of you who are not familiar with American Pie, it's one. It's a really great song. Oh, you should sing but it. But it's eight, no, I'm not singing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's eight and a half minutes long. And so this guy, Dylan Beatty, he's, he's really talented. And he redid one that basically is like a, a journey through all the follies of his different perspectives through his programming career. And it starts out in like assembly and then it goes, I don't know what it's the next one. Is it VB6 or something? And then, oh, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing thing. But eight and a half minutes, I'm not going to play it. So I'm just going to say, go watch the video. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'm sure it will connect with you. What do you think, Brian? It, it's very good. And then check out his channel because there's a bunch of great uh, nerdy videos on his channel. So. It's good. Yeah, if we scroll down here, what will we find in the recommended? Um, you give rest a bad name. That's funny. That was a good <laughs> one. Yeah. The bug in the JavaScript, I think we featured before, but yeah. it's like <laughs> starting to think I might need a drink because the bug is in the JavaScript. That's pretty good. Yeah. Huh. Fun. Yeah. Fun. Anyway, so if this is an entry point into <laughs> quite a bit of time of programmer fun videos. Okay. So that. And that's a programmer one. I've got a like a dad joke, science joke that I wanted to share because I just I ran across it um, recently and I just thought it was so funny. Um, so uh, it's just a comment. There are more hydrogen atoms in a sing single molecule of water than there are stars in the entire solar system. Um, and I talked to several people about it and they just looked at me blankly <laughs> and said, that can't be true. I'm like, sure, there's two hydrogen atoms in a molecule of water and there's one star <laughs> in our solar system. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and those two hydrogen atoms, did the hydrogen atoms come from stars? I don't know. Were they just the stars? Anything larger than that should have come from stars. But yeah. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> anyway. It doesn't make you think. Cause like, if you think galaxy universe, whatever, right. Yeah. But solar system, I mean, solar singular. Yeah. And I had, there, it was funny the, some of the comments were um, like, uh, like trying to calculate the volume of the water and how many atoms might be there. And I'm like, no, it's not an atoms. It's a single molecule of water. Um, not, 
not a glass <laughs> of it. Um, so pretty funny. Yeah, that's how I first started. Like, well, how large is the glass? How many? Okay, how many <laughs> molar is that? And how many? No, wait. That's not what it says at all. That's irrelevant. Yeah. I love it. Anyway. All right. Well. Cool. Well. Once again, yeah. great chatting with you weekly. Yep. You as well. And thanks to everyone for listening. See y'all later. Bye.